folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actress Elizabeth Olsen. It's safe to say that Elizabeth Olsen did not have a normal childhood. As the other sister to the Olsen twins, Elizabeth had a front row seat to her sister's experience in the spotlight, media circus included. And she also witnessed what it was like to be a working actor, something she wanted to be, but was embarrassed to admit. As she says, I had this fear that people would think I didn't earn or deserve the things I worked for because of who I was naturally associated with. Well, the nepotism critique motivated her to prove her worth, but that turned out to be the easy part. Elizabeth's a hard worker by nature. After all, you don't get dubbed NYU's notorious rehearsal Nazi for nothing. And very soon, people started taking notice, and Elizabeth started getting roles, including the one that led to her breakout performance in Martha Marcy May Marlene. Since then, Elizabeth has conquered the world of independent film in projects like Wind River, Kodachrome, and Angry Goes West, and the blockbuster world of Marvel's Avengers franchise, playing superhero Scarlet Witch. Elizabeth is the kind of actor who loves the work and the craft, and she's also the kind of artist who wants to take risks. Her newest project, entitled Sorry for Your Loss, explores all the stages of grief, and Elizabeth plays a widow trying to piece her life back together. Not easy subject matter, but as you'll see, she rises to any challenge thrown her way. Elizabeth joins off-camera to talk about the biggest lessons she's learned from her family, why she may be one of the few actors who likes to audition, and why she's the most zen, type-A personality you'll ever meet. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. Um, thank you for having me. You know what? I love having you here because I discovered... I mean, I saw Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Good job. Good job saying yeah, your name. I, I mean, know, right? I feel pretty not, good about that's that. That's not the easiest title to remember. Well, I saw that. That was my introduction to you. Mm -hmm. And and then a few years later, Wind River came out, and I was blown away by that film. I loved Kodachrome. Um, I mean, obviously, you're in the crazy superhero Avenger world of Marvel. and But this new show you're doing on mm -hmm. Facebook Watch called Sorry for Your Loss is... Uh, on the surface, maybe a really risky thing to do because the subject is grief, mm -hmm. right? And you play a woman who's just been widowed. Mm -hmm. And on the surface, I would think that could be a scary thing. But then when you get into the show, you realize how much humanity is in it. Were you aware of the riskiness of doing a show that is maybe a subject that people, especially in Western culture, yeah. want to stay away from a little bit? I think that's what made me want to do it because it seemed like a whole of a story of storytelling that we don't there there isn't a show about. There's a show there has been shows about someone um, with with an illness dying and dealing with what that coming to terms with being mortal and death and grief usually. Uh, turns in, it's like some sort of pocket of these are the steps you go through and then you find love, or these are the steps you go through and then you're over it. Or it's also like has just like a happy ending. And I th also think it's one of the, it's one of the, the most universal experiences besides taxes. Um, it's, it's, is death, dealing with death, dealing with losing people. And that, that idea and being able to tell an authentic story of how people deal with it and how you don't just get over it um, was something I wanted to be a part of. And 
the when I when I when I think of grief, I think of like we all walk through life with like a my favorite metaphor or analogy is that we all have this backpack of like all of our like trauma or um, or loss that we just carry with us, and it's like a certain weight. And then someone dies, and then the weight changes, and you don't ever lose that weight. You just figure out how to walk differently through life. And so that's kind of how I think of grief and I think of this character is she's learning how to approach life with this whole shift of weight on her back. Right. You're saying the misperception of that is we're supposed to get through it and Mm -hmm. actionably get over it. Yeah. And it's like, why, why do you need to get over it? I think the thing that bothers people is when the memory of someone starts to become fuzzier or people think the healthiest thing is to not bring up that person that you loved so much. Right. And so it's trying to get rid of all those, um, I don't know, those like old-fashioned traditions of like how to get through grief the right way. Um, that's why in episode three, this woman comes into her grief group who seems to be like the perfect widow. Right. And she's driving me crazy, and I thought it was so funny. Yeah. Yeah, like what, what does it look like to grieve perfectly? You know, her husband died in war, right. and she's a woman of faith, and like all of those things. <laughs> and then you have our character Lee, who's like an angry perfectionist, who is whose beliefs are based in science, and doesn't have like a higher faith, um, and just that kind of conflict was it was I always thought it was just really funny to me. No, it's definitely a show about things that we don't want to think about until mm-hmm. we have to. Mm-hmm. And it made me curious about your initial draw to the project. Were you drawn as an actor to be able to play someone in those sorts of emotions? Or were you drawn as a producer to the overall story? Well, I got the pilot and it was, do you want to come on as an actor and a producer? And so the part of producer part of me is, I see this opportunity, this is a hole in storytelling that needs to be filled and should be. Um, in a genuine way, not in um, kind of like a cheesy way or really depressing or something. And I loved the character because I just thought that she was this like type A personality, a really hard woman to console while grieving. And this I was kind of like, well, I don't really have to, I don't have to do, I don't have to put a voice on. I know this girl, she's from L.A. and she... And she has a, a she has a goal of being a creative and making that a job, and she's in love. And I, there's just there's just something simple about her story that I was excited to go back to, and just kind of drop into someone's life. Are you Type A? Me, yeah. Very much so. Oh yeah. How does that work? How does being Type A work with being an actor and being so sort of susceptible to? Outside forces. So the way I think of like my favorite way of performing and acting is all the things that you can do inside structure. It's all the energy. If you if you were to have molecules in a box and a really you know just in a normal box, nothing's open. It's a lot of a lot of hot kinetic energy. And if you were to lift open a box, it becomes like random dispersed energy. So to me, I like feeling creative within structure and form yeah. <laughs> in a controlled atmosphere. That's why I won't do, like, I I never really loved experimental theater. I never, when I trained, it was about the analysis. And so I really love structure, and I really love being creative within structure. (laughs) 
That's how I think about it. I think one of the differences between being an actor and being another kind of artist is another kind of artist, like a painter or a musician, can, they can go it. and just do it and control it. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So I, there's, a, there's a, a teacher I had when I was in college who said, if you guys aren't interested in being in a job that's going to be a constant roller coaster of ups and downs, then you should stop wasting your parents' money or d deal student loans, and you should just change your major now. And when she said that, I was a freshman in college, and I was like, like, I can do that. And it felt like a challenge to me. Yeah. And also with a lot of, I don't know, like m yoga and like certain Buddhist philosophies, the, just knowing the things that you can control, like as a control freak, I know the things that I can control and the things that I can't control and being okay with the things that I can't control. I can't control how many no's I get. I can't control if someone likes what I do. I can't control the edit. I can't control, you know, there's certain things you can't control, but you can control how prepared you are on set. You're, you can control the decisions and choices you right. make as an actor. You get to control saying no. And so there's those kinds of things I just, I, I just know, I just try and forget all the things that are out of my control. I mean, that's a really evolved type A person because think, <laughs> <laughs> what you're talking about is that's hard to do. I mean, yeah. it is the very essence of, of being a type A person is yeah. maybe that you're not so good with the stuff you can't control. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, you didn't come fully formed that way. No, I didn't. I think it, I think it happened in college. Um, I think I had a teacher that talked about that. So I think that was something that I really took to heart in college. I was also someone who always loved auditioning. So when I first started working, I was like, put me in for anything. Like, I just like the, I just like the feeling of auditioning. And it was something that I knew that my ratio of my nose, just for like any reason, whatever, if I don't look like the father, I don't look like the, I look too much like the lead character, whatever it is, all those things aren't in your control. But what's in your control is being prepared and knowing and knowing your shit and making right. your decisions. Right. And so it was just something that I really honed in at the beginning of working. And it made, and I still get obviously annoyed and frustrated if something doesn't turn out the way I was hoping it would. But that's just natural, but you can't like, can be that mad about it because you know that that's not part of your job. Right. I think a lot yeah. of people look at auditioning as sort of um, judgment. Yeah. And I think of it as the director, if you walk in and you do a good job, they're so relieved because everyone's so uncomfortable watching people audition. All they want is for you to do a good job so that they can be done with their day. They want to like find the person and right. get out of there. And then the other thing is, is like even today, if someone is just going on general meetings or if they're not sure what they're looking for, I will say I'm happy to read if you want me to because if I'm not working, I'm not doing my job really. And if someone's going to tell me, do you want to come in for a day with like good material and do some scenes and act, even though it's like with a, like a casting director's assistant or the casting director, that, which is a little awkward, but it's still like a day I get to do my job when I'm not working on something. And to me, it's like meditation. To me, when you're acting, you're focused on something that has nothing to do with the 99% of recycled thoughts that happens in the day-to-day. -day. 
And so that gets to go aside, and then you get to focus on this other thing that's in front of you. And so that's why I, that's why it's like such a break to me. And there's so many things that uh, you said that I want to pick up on. <laughs> I mean, I love the type A control freak actor Buddhist uh-huh. model. <laughs> no, but I think with your show, it's interesting to think about, you know, that you have to embody somebody that is widowed because you obviously can't go like do prep on that. No, totally. But I did wonder if there was some insecurity on your part going in that you could be authentic to those emotions because obviously many people who watch this show will have gone through that or are going through it. Yeah. Like what did it bring up for you? A lot of fear. Yeah? Because it was a lot of what ifs I think on the day-to-day basis for certain scenes and it's not a comfortable place to, like, live in. It's really sad and depressing and fr- and scary. Um, I'm already like a not like a paranoid, fearful person. So like, what that, do you mean? Just like in life, I'm like scared of everything and everyone. Like yesterday, I was in an elevator and the lights were off, and I was like, "Well, this is a perfect opportunity for someone to start a horror movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> someone's getting killed." <laughs> and that's like the first thing I think of instead of instead of oh, this is awkward. I think someone's getting stabbed. <laughs> so I don't know what brain that is, uh, but it's not a healthy. One. But I think that's the creative <laughs> one, though. I mean, yeah. a creative brain is going to be better at vivid imagination yeah. and creating scenarios. And yeah, yeah. Oh, but going back to how to approach the the experience of what it, what it would be. I mean, I've never even been married, but what I do know is I've watched people close to me lose their husband and, or their father, and then honestly, the year of magical thinking by Joan Didion. I read it three times. And it is such a great book to to really be, and she's such a brilliant writer, to be in the inside of someone's head dealing with this like repetition of the what if or the repetition of the, the night it happened and the repetition of the hospitals. And whatever that cyclical thinking is that you can't get out of, and then the feeling of wanting to hold on to the memories and hold on to the the vivid smells um, or what it felt like when you lived in the same home together. Could you point to something you were most insecure about in terms of what I can pull off here? Like, what was the fear going into this one specifically? I think a lot of sameness. That's oh, the like fear. one note? Like, how yeah. are we going to make it? Okay. The sameness is my fear. Like, the the not being able to find the shades of personalities. Um, we have certain episodes, like episode six is kind of like her dealing with like mania. And that was a really frustrating episode to shoot for me because I was like, I think I'm just being a bad actor. Because I was like so like high strung all the time. And I was like, like none of this feels grounded. grounded. Right. <laughs> Especially with TV because there's a baseline of who the character is and then things happen to them. And so that kind of does And you this. haven't really done that. No. Usually I see a film and I create an arc and, you know, you film something here and you film something here and you try and bridge it. And, but, uh, yeah, with this, I, didn't, I had a kind of vague idea of the ten episodes. And I wonder about that if, if now being a producer as well, if it gives you a different lens on your own job. Yeah, especially in the last five years. They've always been 
And even at the beginning, there are just certain jobs where you just somehow are more opinionated than others. And they know how I feel about, like, all of my opinions, whether it's... Um, whether it's just like a moment between characters or a scene I feel like doesn't feel exactly right. Um, but I always have something to say. So as a producer, I still felt like I was doing that part of my acting job of having a lot of opinions. But this time it was at the beginning stages when, when drafts were first drafts. I was seeing drafts that the actors would never see right. on our show. And they're like, what happens in episode, in episode six? And I'm like, well, we're really working on it. And so to be a part of the molding of it was, was had its own challenges. But it was definitely just something I learned what what that is, and then even in post production, yeah, I've really which loved is, being never, a part of that, yeah, which I've you, never been a part of. Right? Did it give you any insight on acting that you didn't have before? Because you got to see, you, you got to look at it more dispassionately as a performance versus, you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, it's just like how big the whole thing is, and like, right? I mean, it's just, I I had a another thing from college, but I had a teacher that. To completely disarm, like, as an actor, I felt like the lowest on the totem pole because I had a teacher that said, people have been working on these projects for months before you and they will months after you. You are a piece of the puzzle, which kind of takes away your ownership of characters. When I first started working, I was like, you do costumes, you tell me what to wear, as opposed to, this is my character and I think she should wear this because I think I know her really well. Right. So I had to have that, like, learning curve because I just thought, I'm, I, I'm nothing, I am nothing, and I am your tool or something. Um, but now, as watching this, I don't know if I necessarily learned something about my own work. I think the thing I learned was that I'm not uncomfortable watching myself and fixing and changing, which is kind of cool. Yeah. To be able to treat yourself as a third person and not be emotionally, not be connected or attached to it and just treat yourself as this other actor that you're editing. Yeah, I would think that that would be really hard to get used to at first. Yeah, but now I've like, I'm so, I've been watching myself for like six months and I'm like so over it. I also just think like, oh, like now I know what my face does. I hope next time I, I do my next project, like I hope I don't think about like the facial expressions I don't like looking at or whatever. I, I think that's hard to get out of your own way on that. And in this yeah. project, you are not glammed out by any stretch no. of the imagination. When it comes to any of my work, I it's not it's what I look like isn't that precious. I I I cared about having healthy skin and I decided to start a new skin regime for this show because I knew I didn't want to wear makeup. Um I wanted it to you know, you also want your flaws to come through so everyone can see flaws on camera and they're like, oh, I'm have flaws too. But I also don't want to have like big pimples <laughs> <Right>. on screen. <laughs> oh, she's really in bad shape. Yeah. Look at those zits. Yeah. yeah so no. I, I like started seeing like a facialist for the first time in my life. This is all part of grief. It's one of the five stages <laughs> yeah. of grief. Just in case you want to know how you prepare a role for grief. That's right. You, it's see, a go- you see a facialist <laughs> once every three weeks. <laughs> Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you think you may be depressed, or if you're feeling anxious, stressed, or overwhelmed, 
BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are trained to listen and to help. Now, with BetterHelp, you can talk with your counselor in a private online environment at your own convenience from wherever you're comfortable. BetterHelp counselors have expertise in a broad range of areas, such as, you know, anxiety, depression, grief. They deal with relationships, sleep disorders, LGBT matters, self-esteem, family conflict, and more. They can give you access to help that may not be available in your area. So what you do is you fill out a questionnaire and it helps assess your specific needs and you get matched with your counselor in under 48 hours. And then you can easily schedule secure video or phone sessions with your therapist. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages. Everything you share is confidential. And if for any reason you're unhappy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. So join the million plus people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced BetterHelp counselor. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they are currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. BetterHelp is an affordable option for therapy, and our listeners get 10% off the first month with the discount code CAMERA. You can get started today at betterhelp.com camera. That's betterhelp.com camera. Now back to the show. Okay, you brought up college a whole bunch, and, and one of the things I think when you go specifically to a conservatory, but you went to Tisch, right? I did, I went to Tisch. So one of the things I think is a common experience among actors is this idea that you get broken down to be built back up. Mm-hmm. Or that, like you said, there's teachers that are trying to almost scare you. Yeah, you're nothing. Or like, get out now, right? If, right? So it made me curious about your decision to to go to a conservatory, I mean, obviously, you're in a family that grew up in the business. You, you grew up here in Los Angeles. Y- your family and yourself, you, you know everybody. You could have certainly been fine just going straight into auditioning. And mm-hmm. I wondered if college was as much for you to like carve your own path. Yeah, I think I was really embarrassed being from LA and having family in the, in the industry to say, I want to be an actress even though that's what I did my whole childhood. I went to all the camps. And then I went to conservatory programs in high school, and I just loved it. But I didn't, I again, type A, really like always loved like math and sciences. And I was a great student, and so I just thought, what a shame if I don't go to college and get a higher education, if I've been spending all this time, you know, obsessing over A's. And... So I thought, oh, I should go to an Ivy League. I should go to Brown. And I didn't get into Brown. And I got into NYU. And while I was there, I always felt like I had, if I had to have all the tools. Like if I were ever to actually be an actor, I had to have all the tools. And I, I had to feel confident about what I was going to do in order to also hear the nepotism comments. I had right. to be really confident in like my own skills and abilities and that no I put in the time because you're going to you're going to say shit no matter what I do if I'm bad I'm bad if I'm good you, it's nepotism or whatever it is right. and so I was like gearing up for it and so going to college and doing the conservatory even then when a teacher said, rehearse 8 hours for a 2 minute scene, I would rehearse 8 to 10 hours for a 2 minute scene. And no one else would. <laughs> well, I appear, I learned that like I was 
that so, there's a guy when I went to my thir- for third year of college, there's a guy who I'd never been in like an ensemble with or like a 12 person class because they switched it up every semester. And he was like, oh, my God, you're the rehearsal Nazi. And I was like, what? He was like, yeah, you're the rehearsal Nazi. It's not even a good joke because it's Nazi. You can't make jokes about Nazis anymore. But Not soup Nazis, not rehearsal <laughs> We just can't use that anymore. Can't use it anymore. And so he, and I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, I heard you just love to rehearse. And I'm like, yeah, well, they tell us that that's so many hours we should be rehearsing. And he was like, no one does it. I was like, what? <laughs> I've been doing this for three years. No one told me. Um, but so I always had this this need to prove myself to myself and to like everyone around me that I work really hard. You make the nepotism comment. I would think that it would be an incredible part of your backpack and the way you walk and the way you're weighted down that you can't walk in without people already having an opinion. Yeah. I mean, what was your big fear on that? Because I think some people might just say, yeah, screw it. Who cares how I got here? I got here. You know, Mm -hmm. what was your fear about that? I don't, I think it just, I think it, it's just the fear was that you don't, you don't earn or deserve the things you work for because of who you're naturally um, associated with. And there was even a part of me when I was a little girl, I always thought, well, if I'm going to be an actress, I'm going to go by Elizabeth Chase, which is my middle name. And then once I started working, I was like, why? Well, like, I love my family. Like, I like my name. I love my sisters. Why would I be? Right. Why would I be so ashamed of that? And so, you know, there are those kinds of weird thoughts that you have, and then you just kind of get over it, and you're like, and now I'm like really over it, and now it's become kind of this this question that's just like a factual thing, just for like r- reference. Right. But at the beginning. I don't know. It's just it was definitely it was definitely something I was always aware of, and which made me work harder. Yeah, I wonder if in some ways that was really the thing that you needed the most was like your type anus needed to grab onto something, and then that made you work. You almost had to rebel against your own yeah. situation, yeah. right? <laughs> like because you started out, you like what's your earliest memory of being on a film set? How old were you? I don't know. Full house. I mean, I was I was like after school care to Were you me. Like four or five. Yeah. Or, and so, like, when did you clock that that was a job that people do from the beginning? You you knew it was a job. It wasn't just like yeah. Because I would go to school. My sisters would go to work. You That's know, a, it was work. Such a different. <laughs> like, did you ever sit down with your parents and go, "Is there anything else people do other than <laughs> like?" Well, you the know. funny thing, not, neither of my parents are in the in the entertainment industry. Um, my dad's a golfer, but he's also in mortgage. And, like, my mom was a dancer. Everyone had this, like, thing that they associate themselves with, and none of it was acting, and none of it was in this industry. And so I think there's also this other thing where you grow up and you you, you are so lucky to ha- live in a, in a nice home, and you're so lucky to go to a private school. And you're, you're so lucky to go to craft service. Yeah. <laughs> you're so lucky to go to craft service and, like, eat pe- peanut M&Ms or something. Right. Um, that I wanted a job that created um, some sort of structure to me that I could provide that for myself when I got older. And acting wasn't one of those jobs to me. I just thought that that was kind of like a, oh, that's kind of a risk. And I don't. I wasn't much of a risk taker. I actually thought I should go into something that was more structured, 
Um, my mom thought I should go to law school. My dad thought I should do Wall Street. Like, so did they both think like, oh, this isn't going to last? I don't know. I think they 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 liked that I wasn't going. I wasn't applying to colleges that were just strictly conservatories. They're conservatories within a liberal arts education. Okay. And so I think they were that that was my father's like. Okay, well, she'll have a backup just from having a degree. And then when I started understudying my sophomore year of college, I think everyone got nervous I was going to drop out of college and kind of throw away all of, like, the time you spend on an education. And I I didn't. I don't know if it was... My dad still probably wants me to be on Wall Street. I don't know. You think still? I think he's proud. (laughs) Do you remember a time when you were able to comfortably feel like this is where I'm supposed to be and this is what I'm supposed to be doing and and it's okay? Yeah, I think it was in college, actually. Really? Yeah, it was while I was there. Things just started happening, like be like getting hired for things so it all just felt like this is all lining up well and the things that they said to scare people you were like that's for me yeah and that was your challenge (laughs) yeah Yeah. and I loved the way they taught and I loved every Friday they would have um they would have guests they would have guest speakers every Friday and we had Martin McDonough we had Kate Winslet we had just like Anyone that they were they were working with, you you got to listen to them speak, and it it humanized the whole experience, and it made everyone a craftsman. It wasn't like it wasn't like growing up in LA and seeing everyone on like Us magazine, right? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, did you have a period of that, like in high school, where you actually were disillusioned with the idea of being an actor because yeah. what you saw was that? Oh yeah. Like, did you almost quit? Yeah, I mean, I think the reason why I studied so much theater initially was because you didn't see theater actresses getting on, followed. On yeah. <laughs> getting followed around LA and right. putting themselves in danger. And I just I mean, there there were times where, you know, my sisters would always be followed and I would be in the car with them and it would really freak me out. Yeah, how do you dissociate that? Like well, how do you love of, the idea of acting yeah. and then think it leads to that? So what I've, like, now kind of figured out, because everyone's like, your life's going to change. Like, every job I got. Like, Martha, your life's going to change. Or Marvel, your life's going to change. And, like, I'm still doing the same thing I've been doing. And I think the idea of celebrity is, like, such a strange concept. And now we're really capitalizing on it with social media. And we're really capitalizing yeah. it with how we now sell products. Um, and I, it's a little strange to me. Um, but in my life, I have... I mean, this has also kind of made me someone who's more of a homebody than maybe I'd like to be. But I I know where not to go. I know I don't go to a lot of events that I have no business being at for, like, a work thing personally. Um, just because I, I want to... I, I look at someone like Julia, Julia Roberts. Right. And I don't see her hounded all the time. And I, and I don't know much about her life. But I know her work, and she shows up for her, for her things, and she shows up for anything she's doing press for for her own work, and then I don't hear from her, or as a as a as a fan. Right. And I just think, well, she's doing something in order to make that happen. She's not continuing. It's this it's under constant her control. Interest, yeah. <laughs> like you can control yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of how I've always thought. Like if I, if I do only this much, maybe. 
you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be someone that gets stopped at the grocery store. Right. But yeah, it's an odd, it's an odd thing. Cause I, I knew it before. I just never thought it would happen to me. I'm curious if there's some fundamental uh, misperception that follows you around or that you have to deal with that is, is just part of the deal that you've had to accept. Yeah. And I think a lot of people do talk about that. And the, the thing that's the issue is like, and you're so lucky. And you're so lucky to get to have a job that you love so much and to, and to um, be able to do it every day. That so, like, to complain off. about it is always, like, it would, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, that would make me really mad, <laughs> if, especially if I was the rehearsal Nazi. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm not lucky. Yeah. Like, you should have seen how many hours but, I... But you are, but you're, you know, you're so fortunate to complain about something like people liking your work or is... I don't mind if someone, like, at the grocery store, there was, like, a little boy, not little, he was, like, 13 with his mom, and... He wants to be an actor, and he was very sweet. And I was really happy to talk to them and really happy to, to sneak a photo with him. What I'm not cool with is a man in a tinted window car following me to my home. So I pull over, I get out of my car. You're and not I good with that? No, I'm not good with that. <laughs> I was so mad. I, it was a rainy day, and I pulled over, and I got out of my car, and I walked straight to his car, and he turned around. Because I was so mad. I just moved. And I was like, you're not going to find out where I live, buddy. God, that's crazy. And so that, I, that I'm just, like, that's just not humane. I mean, there are a lot of things that aren't humane. But, and that shouldn't be on the top of the list. But that is, is uncomfortable. That part's uncomfortable. That should be on the top of the list. If, if you are worried about your own personal safety and being followed to where you live, that's not something that, you should like file under, but you're so lucky. So this yeah. is part of your life. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, the prep that you do, and uh, and maybe as a way to talk about Wind River because I like that film so much. And uh, you play an FBI agent, yeah, <laughs> uh, investigating a murder in Wyoming in the middle of winter on an Indian reservation, mm-hmm. and it's such a great film. And I think initially when I when I first read about it and went to see it, I was like, huh, Elizabeth Olsen's FBI agent. Yeah, that's how right? I thought about it, too. <laughs> well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about how you prep yourself into believing, like, even before you have to convince the director mm-hmm. or convince whoever, um, how you convince yourself and how that process happens through prep. Well, I thought Taylor Sheridan was insane, the director-writer. Yeah. yeah, who also did Sicario, or wrote Sicario. Um, I was like, how do you, why do you think I'd be great at this? Because he just wanted me to do it. He didn't make a list. He was like, I want Elizabeth Olsen. So talk about that, like, the, after you're over the initial shock of being asked to do yeah. it. Yeah, it was the, the, the training informed every decision I made as an actor. And, a lo- and it's sometimes, you know, you do the inside out. What do you mean? If you were to, like, for something with, like, sorry for your loss, you are going through all the emotional, um, thoughtful, everything's like in your head, analytical, and then that will inform maybe how you walk, that will inform how you speak, that will inform Your those wardrobe. Kind of, yeah, those okay. kinds of things. But with the FBI agent, there are so many physical things I had to learn that it informed the emotional, and also the people I was training with were informing my character choices. So you went outside in? Yeah, and so that was different for me, and it was really great. I got to train, I got to do gun work for, I think, three months at least before we started shooting. 
and I worked with a law enforcement officer who was an LEO for 17 years and just hearing his stories, like being a cop in LA during the riots in the 90s and um, and just the day-to-day of how he approaches someone walking down the street who he knows is packing or something and how he would, how you uh, approach those people as someone that they shouldn't be messing with. And people would think, oh, you should avoid eye contact or you should look somewhere else. And you're actually supposed to just calmly look if someone looks like they're gonna, they're a little threatening to you, and they're just passing you on the street or something, you look them in the eye. That's your guy following you. Yeah, you look them in, in the yeah, you look them in the eye. <laughs> you look them in the eye. You don't, you don't avoid it because looking them in the eye means I see you, you see me. And so there are certain things that we just discussed that had nothing to do with the gun work we were doing, just things that would come up naturally. But then when we went to Utah. I was shooting all live rounds. In LA, I wasn't shooting live rounds. And so every weekend I would go and shoot like a thousand live rounds. And I got really comfortable with, um, with having that responsibility and having also that adrenaline and that fear and, um, but knowing that you can focus it in and that you're in control of the thing, of the object, of the gun. And, um, I just, and like, I was also learning how to like naturally clear space. I'd like walk into my house and like know how to like, to find the spots to clear first and close in. And it was just really interesting to get in that mindset. Right. And then you just trust the script at that point. And I naturally don't like the cold. So that wasn't <laughs> hard. <laughs> but that well, was really fun to do that prep work for, yeah. for that character. Well, I mean, just right off the bat when you say, you know, I went and did gun work for three months. I would think that that borders on obsessiveness in terms of that certainly wasn't Taylor calling you up and saying, you need to go do three months of gun work, right? What I wanted was to be confident enough holding a gun on camera that people watching wouldn't be like, oh, she doesn't know how to hold a gun. And my least favorite thing is watching people on, ca- on, on, on camera and you're like, that's not how you hold it proper. Like, that's not what you should be doing. Right. Or even, like, Mel Gibson and, um, da- not, da- what, what is his, what was his, uh, his... Oh, Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon. Yeah. And Lethal Weapon, he's, like, the best shot, right? But he blinks every time he shoots the gun. Every time he shoots his gun, he's blinking. And it bothers me so much when I watch Lethal Weapon now. Like, you're blinking. If you're a great shot, your eyes are going to stay open. You're not going to blink. So there are those kinds of things that you obsess over. Yeah. And that kind of prep work, I just feel like you, you just got to do. I always feel like if you're doing something that's outside of yourself, make something as habitual as possible. And this is the goal. You wish you had that much prep time. You don't always have much prep time. But the goal is to have all those habitualized so that on the day, all you're thinking about is the human thing. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Amazon Alexa. Now, before I get into the details, I want to tell you a little story about my childhood. When I was young, whenever we would leave the house, my mom would turn on our little AM radio and put it on to KABC, which at that time was a talk radio station. And it was sort of her low budget security system. Because it was true, if you walked up to the house and you heard people talking, you kind of assumed there was someone home or you were hearing people in the house. And that was her thing. She could not leave the house without the radio being on. 
And incidentally, there was radio happening in my house all the time, which led to me loving radio. But what it also did is it made me aware of the fact that you're living in a house, you could be burglarized, uh, try to fool the people who might want to do that. Well, things have come a long way since then, and we no longer have AM radios with antennas sitting on our countertops next to our toasters. But what we do have is smart homes and Wi-Fi connected lives, and Amazon Alexa has these smart bulbs. And they connect to Alexa, and they have a feature called Away Lighting that makes it look like you're home when you're not by randomly turning on and off lights in your house. Gosh, can you imagine if my mother had that? And beyond the security aspect, of course, we're always looking for ways to make our lives easier. We're juggling too much, so the ability to offload even the smallest tasks can make a difference. And once you install smart bulbs connected to Alexa into your home, you kind of can't believe you ever lived without them. And right now, Amazon Alexa is offering a special smart lighting bundle for listeners of this show. Now, this is really easy. With the Amazon Smart Lighting Bundle, you can turn your home into a smart home in just minutes. Setup is super easy. You don't need any extra equipment. You just connect your new smart bulb to the Echo Dot and you're all set. You can set it to every possible mood with over 16 million light colors to choose from. Or you can control the lights in your home with the sound of your voice. You just say, Alexa, turn on the lights. It's pretty amazing. My mom would love it. You can also set lighting routines to gently wake you up in the morning, help you wind down at night, or completely turn off at a certain time. Basically, these are the lights that were promised to us in the Jetsons. <laughs> so right now, you can get 20% off your Amazon Smart Lighting Bundle only at Amazon.com slash off-camera. Every bundle includes an Echo Dot smart speaker and a signified color-changing light bulb. That's Amazon.com slash off-camera to get 20% off and take advantage of this amazing smart home deal. Once again, that's Amazon.com slash off-camera. Now back to the show. You know, you said that the cold, you don't like the cold. And, and I read something where you were talking about how you were going to make sure that you were just as tough as everyone else on the crew in Wyoming. Oh, yeah. And I, I think that dovetails perfectly with your personality. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is, is a big part of your personal, like, the way you sleep at night going, I proved that I worked as hard as everybody else and that I can, like, I cannot let my work stand for itself? It's more so that I don't, I, I don't want to complain. Right. Like, I don't want to be the person that gets bothered by something that, um, that is something I can deal with or something. It's that, it's that, but it's also that I, that I work hard. And my, my, Mark Abraham is now my friend who, who directed I Saw the Light. He always refers to me as a serious person. I'm like, oh God, Mark, don't introduce me. Don't tell someone, like when you talk about me, she's a really serious person. Like no one likes serious people. Like no, that's boring. That's not like good dinner conversation. Like stop calling me a serious person. He was like, no, but you're serious about what you do. And he was like, and people respect people being serious about what they do. And I was like, yeah, but I also think people like would rather be with someone who's a little bit more playful about what they do. But I do take it seriously. I do take anything that I'm going to stamp my name on or my creative anything on, I'll take it really seriously because if it's something that I love and care about, I'm, I'm going to take it seriously. And is that for yourself too, like, like when you're in prep and when you are trying to figure out, like, like you said, like trying to figure out how to hold a gun so that, yeah. so that people understand 
It has to be for myself. I have to talk to my therapist about this one. But it has to be for myself at some point, you know? Right, like, like is there something where, like, are you a harder critic on yourself than anyone else would yeah, be? Yeah, I always imagine the worst, too. You it's do. It's the Woody Allen quote of, like, I don't want to belong to a club that will have me as a member. Is that really how you feel? Yeah. So interesting. So when you look at a script, <laughs> do you identify certain scenes where if anyone's going to, like, if, if I'm going to fail, it's going to be that scene? In Wind River, I did have one of those scenes that I feared doing. You did? Yeah, and it was when all the guys are about to do their, it's kind of like a standoff, and we all have our guns drawn, and I'm the one who has to say, FBI, guns down, FBI. And it's like, I have to scream FBI. Like, someone screaming FBI is in so many films, on so much television, and I have to do it, and I have to mean it, and I have to be really serious about saying FBI. Um... And so I was nervous about that. What it's so iconic. Like, FBI. Like, that's just so iconic. And you were like, that's just so not me. I don't, yeah, I was just kind of like, God, I hope I, I hope I seem like I mean it. Like, I'm <laughs> FBI. There's just something about screaming, making all these men listen to me. And that's probably, like, that, that draws itself. on bigger issues, yeah. right? Like, oh, they're going to listen to me. All these big Wyoming yeah. cops are going to turn and... Yeah, so... That there was that that I there's there's always something to to fear, which is always fun to eventually do. It's like a really freeing feeling to fear something so much, and you just have to do it. It's the inevitable. I do think that acting is like that. It, it's like there's always going to be things that challenge you because you're you're essentially playing different people, right? And so there's always going to be scenes, no matter how how far you get into your career, where it's going to bring up insecurities, I would assume. Mm-hmm. Like, like, how can I pull that off? Mm-hmm. And I'm always interested in the relationship between the judgment, the self-critic that goes on with that versus what anyone else thinks you can do, mm-hmm. right? Like Taylor obviously thought you could do that just fine yeah. and hired you. And what do you, what do you think are some, some things that actors grapple with that, that no one else even thinks about? I was just talking about it kind of a little bit with someone yesterday who's a director and I was talking we were talking about actors who when you're it's like on the on the day you're supposed to be filming we can start whenever the actors stop talking kind of thing and it's it's this there's there's a habit sometimes of talking a lot about a scene instead of just doing it right like it's not set in stone just do it um but I mean, I I get this way too sometimes, where you're just there's this like logic and rational human who is dealing with like social boundaries, and to shove that aside in order to jump into the thing that is like kind of irrational, which is you playing make believe as an adult human. <laughs> yeah. And to not have the inhibitions of what protects you in the world, sometimes it's harder to shove that aside than others, and some actors really need to talk a lot about it before feeling safe or comfortable. It's like getting permission, right? Yeah, to do that. And to me, I always I always feel like the more you talk about it, it, it feels like an avoidance instead of just doing. And there are some days where you're able to relieve the person watching you and then there's some days where you're not or there's some moments where you just can't get past the person watching you 
and saying, that's not good, that's not good. And a lot of times when I get obsessive with this scene and I say, no, I need another one, or no, I need another one, multiple times when the director's saying, I'm telling you, we got it. I was watching them in the dailies for this show and I was like, what was I talking about? Like, why was I wasting our time? Because there is some third party in my brain looking at it being like, like, no, that's not right. That's not how it should be. That's not how it should be. And I don't know what it is. So there's always that kind of, like, the societal thing that gets us through the day is all of our brick walls, which are really necessary to survive. You just need to kind of shove them away and, like, deep dive into this really uncomfortable... But then once you're there, there's this freedom in it. There's this sense of freedom in this, in this box. That's the mystery of, of the profession, right? Because on the surface, oh, you learn your lines, and when the other character says their line, then you say the line you memorize. Yeah, you try and say it like, with a, that sounds like how people talk. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but it's this funny thing where it's like the, the mistakes are the ones that you learn from the most, and I say that being someone who hates making mistakes. Because you're type A. Yeah, and I don't want to embarrass myself, and I don't want to, you know, try and do something that's like an extreme emotion that come out just seeming bad and wrong. But you just got to do it because then you'll get to the other side of it sometimes and it doesn't feel great <laughs> to embarrass yourself. But there's that's when you that's when you need a great director, that's when you need a great crew, that's when you need the the structure of the box to feel really supportive so that you you know that it's okay to fail. You know that that's not going to that's not going to define anything. Has your self-critical voice changed in, or evolved into a either more benevolent or more intellectual self-critical voice as, as you've become more experienced and done this for a number of years? I think so. I, you know what? I miss the, the idea of um, making something in like like the pure the purity of making something for the first time is the purity that you don't know that uh, that you don't know what's going to happen out. to it that you don't realize people are going to watch it like when we filmed Martha Marcy May Marlene good job by I, the way yeah <laughs> i was i was um i was a kid who was still in theater school who got this job opportunity i didn't understand um camera angles. I didn't understand Was that lenses. like really your first film? It was my second job but still not having seen something I've been in on camera. Still not really understanding the this, this structure of filming and being really uncomfortable with it but also there's a freedom of not having any knowledge. There's a freedom of I understood independent films to be the films that occasionally made its way to the Encino Lemley. Like, I didn't <laughs> right. think of it, there were like five movies, and sometimes there were foreign films. I never thought of it as something that that got reviewed, and people would see, and it would move up the ladder. I never thought, I never knew the politics of it. And so making it, you don't think about critics. You don't think about, is this a step in the right direction for my career? It's so pure. And that, that kind of first experience, you never get again. Yeah. And the critical part of my brain now is just now more informed and educated, but also at the same time trying to make something in that kind of like p- 
purity again. Like trying to get that back or capture whatever it was that was magical about that. Yeah, that feeling of like, there's something that's safe and not knowing any of this shit. Like right. when they said we got into Sundance, I was like, I know Sun like Sundance is that film festival. I think I've heard of it. And then we went. And everyone was like, this is going to change your life. And I just thought, you guys are all insane. You guys are, like, living in a snow globe. You guys think that this is what the world is. And it's just not. And that's what I kept thinking. And then it did change my career. And so it it was this funny thing where I thought, oh, you don't know. But, like, I didn't know. Right. (laughs) Right. And it is just an aspect of the world. But it's the aspect of the world that I'm a part of. But at that time, I just thought, you guys are all crazy. Like, I just didn't... You I had didn't, no idea. I had no, I, no, I had no idea. I, I <laughs> Which is really stupid, because people think, how? You, like, you grew up in L.A. and all this stuff. But I just... Independent filmmaking to me wasn't, like... It wasn't a political land or world that I understood. But I, I think what you're describing is when you do something for the first time, you have an opportunity to make a choice that's not based on anything. Mm-hmm. And so it has a chance to be something totally new. Yeah. Now, if you're going to make a choice... It's in gonna... a body of work. It's in comparison to the last choice right. you made. Yeah. Can you still make it mysterious for yourself? Like, is that sort of the, the goal now is to figure out ways to actually get away from that, those constructs or, the, or that experience? There is something that is in a goal that, like, with Sorry for Your Loss, there is this idea of these were limits I had. Let's try and, like, break break those down. Like, now I'm producing, and now I can see behind the curtain of post-production and all those things that I'd never really seen before. So it's almost like, to for me to create more opportunities, it's like pulling more curtains down in a way, right. which makes it feel more tangible. In some, in some odd sense, and also terrifying, because there is this feeling of, oh, maybe if I were to do this, if I were to direct, or if I were to, um, I guess if I were to direct something, now I have these tools that I didn't have before, but do I really want to be the person who makes all these decisions? I don't know. <laughs> because just watching, just being a part of the group that makes decisions was you know, is really fascinating also. And I like, I like group dynamics. I like working with people. I like the ensemble aspect of the job. Right. Which was what we were talking about before with, like, the painter can go paint or the musician can go play. I really benefit from, the, from working as, a, as an ensemble or, or teamwork. Right. You're in this place where, at the beginning, when you just say yes because you're happy to get the job and yeah. you don't know anything about being on a film set and, and you make these interesting choices, there's, there's that freedom of the mystery to it. Mm-hmm. But then when you know everything, you're sort of also responsible for everything, Yeah, right? then, you, then you become responsible for the decisions you make. And, yeah. and then, I mean, there are moments in my life where I've been like, oh, I wish I had that information. At the beginning of my career, I would have held, held out for other jobs. Maybe there would have been a different path or... If I said no to this, I would have been available for this other thing, and that would have been maybe a different road. But you can't, like, always do that. Are you pretty good at letting that stuff go? No, no. I'm not, <laughs> but I try. Because, I, I mean, there's still some jobs that I that I wish I, I was able to do, and I'd be curious if it would have changed my relationship with the directors I wanted to work with, that I didn't have the... It was a conflict, their schedule conflict thing. That's the hardest thing, right? It's because just frustrating. the minute you take something... You can't take four other things. Yeah. And then that thing, you have no control over. I mean, again, I don't know how yeah. you do this as a, 
as a type A, you know, non-Buddhist? <laughs> I hope to have a long life <laughs> and I hope to get to work for a long time. And so I, I just feel like that it will, it will work out at some, like it will just keep hope, like hopefully opportunities don't just like die, you know. Are you afraid of that still? I'm actually not. It's funny because saying that, I always am like, I hope I don't sound cocky because I'm not cocky and I'm not confident. I'm really insecure and I'm really terrified of a lot of things. But for some reason, I feel okay being a working actor. I think it's also because I've never had, like, I've never been number one and I've never been bottom of the totem pole. I've always just kind of treaded. And I feel like that's a, that's a place I'm comfortable being in. But I think when you see the top, when you see the number one, I think the way down looks a lot scarier. And I've never seen the top. You know what? I think that that is the clearest explanation of it because what you're talking about is, you know, your whole story is you have done this for the right reasons because you love it and not because you wanted to be famous and not because you wanted... Yeah. <laughs> that kind of attention at all. This is a craft to you. Mm -hmm. And that may go a long way towards like serenity when it comes to looking at the long view of your career because yeah. you didn't want to get here to be, to have adulation and fame. Yeah, or be like the best. Because I think some people do want to be the best at a, at a job. Right. And I've always thought of the best as being, uh, it, it, for the most part, it's a phase, unless you're in Meryl Street. But like for the most part, it is, you're the best for a moment, and then either people, there's oversaturation or whatever it is, it changes, there's like a drop, there's a lull, maybe it gets to go back up again. But like, I like the safe dreading space of just being like someone who's able to to work and things maybe work out. Sometimes they don't. Like, just keep moving along. <laughs> so, so the irony is, if you become that person at number one, you're going to have a lot more fear about your career than you do right yeah. now. Yeah, <laughs> I would. I really think I would. Well, I, I'll tell you, it's been so fascinating talking to you because I, I think the easy assumption to make would be that your family set the bar so high that it gave you some, you know, out, out of control idea of what it would take to satisfy your expectations. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like it's just the opposite. And obviously your parents did something right because, <laughs> because you're pretty grounded. I mean, was there, is there a mantra or a, a rule that you learned from your family that sort of still holds true in the way you conduct yourself or the way you conduct business? Or? Yeah, I think there are two things. Something my sisters always say, which might have come from my father at one point, my dad, I don't know. It's that no is a full sentence. Oh, really? And I really like that, especially as a woman. No is a full sentence. Yeah, you can just say no. And I just really like that in all aspects of life. And then the other thing is because my dad's a golfer, the mind of a golfer is like the mind of a Buddhist in some... In some you have to be in the present to be a good golfer. You have to be really present. Yeah. Um, and you have to really let go of your last hand if it's bad or if it's good. It doesn't matter. You can't have an attachment to it. And my dad would always say um, to try and beat your last best score, that you're only competing against yourself. You're not competing against anyone else. 
And that's what golfers do. They don't. They yes, they are competing, but they're competing against their own scores and their own handicap and their own last best round. But it's that idea that you're not in competition with anyone else except to improve yourself. And I think that's something that that's always had a big impression on me. Yeah. No, I think that's a really a really great way to look at a career that you there's so many things you don't have control over. Mm-hmm. What you do have control over is your own relationship to the work. Mm-hmm. And and whether or not you are still growing and improving and finding new. Like that's that's your score. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's not always this. Right. <laughs> well, your career is fascinating and and I've really enjoyed talking to you. Me too. Uh, Hey folks, that's our show. If you want to check out more of Elizabeth's work, I recommend starting with Wind River and then seeing Kodachrome, Ingrid Goes West, and Martha Marcy May Marlene. And you can see her latest work, Sorry for Your Loss, on Facebook Watch. Also, you can check us out at offcamera.com. For only $4.99 a month, you can see this show in glorious black and white on any device, at any time, and have access to the entire archive of over 150 shows. So check that out. And please tell your friends about Off Camera. You can shout about it on social media. We're Off Camera Show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I'm Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. You can also send me an email. I'm sam at offcamera.com. And if you want to suggest a guest or send me a criticism or just tell me what you're doing with your life, I love hearing about it. Also, you can get this podcast automatically updated to your phone just by subscribing. So if you haven't yet, Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our show. And while you're there, give us a rating. Every time we get a rating, it helps other people find the show. So if you love what we're doing, don't keep it a secret. Share it with the world. I also want to thank the people that work on the show. We have a lot of talented people who work really hard and really believe in what we're doing and could not do the show without these people. Crawford Shippey, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, Nathan Shields, Kara Johnson, Zach Valdry, and Matt Davidson who likes to cut his spaghetti into tiny pieces. See you next time, off camera.